Well, our podcast is called Send Your Demos to Table 5. Thank you very much for joining us. You're um, welcome, sir. Thank you for having me. I've got to say, I'm absolutely loving the new Hayley Seinfeld song that you wrote. Thank you. Thank you so much. That took a while. That one was a real hard slog. I can't lie. It's a really, really good pop song. Like, me and Samir are both obsessed with uh, the Ed Sheeran song, Beautiful People. Mm, and, I love that song as well. Yeah. And when I heard the Haley Seinfeld song, I had a similar reaction. Just kept listening to it. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. I guess if you could just briefly say like, a bit about yourself, what you're up to at the moment, and then I'll ask you sort of how you got into music. At the moment, there's a lot going on. A lot, a lot. Like, it's kind of almost overwhelming how much is suddenly happening. There's always, like, a catalyst. There's always, like, that kind of moment that makes the offshoots, you know, start kind of picking yeah. up elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But I would say the first real thing that really started to move in a big way was an artist that I found at, well, she was 14 at the time when I found her. And I developed her for quite a number of years. Her name's Claudia Valentina. And she is the talk of every record label for the past kind of year. And there's been this huge bidding war going on around her. And that kind of put my name as a writer and a producer in the mouths of most A&Rs because everyone was trying to sign her. Even though nothing had actually come out, it was just one of those things that a lot of people were talking about, the music and the way that it come together. And off the back of that, I end up meeting my management who then start putting me in the right situations. So I just had the Jonas Brothers, last Jonas Brothers single that I um, co-wrote and co-produced with a girl called Jessica Gomba, who I write everything with, or most of my stuff with, um, and Ryan Tedder, which is a dream come true. And then the Hayley Steinfeld single that just came out uh, recently, maybe about two or three weeks ago. Um, and I produced that myself and wrote that with Jess and another writer that we work a lot with. And then there's just lots of different cuts coming out here and there, dance stuff, just spreading my net as far as I can, really. I don't like honing in on just one thing. I feel like, you know, if I can be as diverse as possible in whether it be the writing or the production or both, that's what keeps me excited, really. Yeah. So how long ago was it when you, when you sort of first really entered the music industry? My first real professional gig was with your artist, Superheart. And Luke is my oldest friend and best friend. And he, um, he asked me to come play drums with him when he was supporting uh, Simply Red. Uh, but he wasn't super hot at the time. He was going under his, his real name. And that was my first real gig going on the road. I think I did 12, 15 dates around the UK with Luke and uh, Simply Red. And that was as a session drummer. And I was recording everything for him as far as all the drums on his records and his EPs and all that kind of stuff. So that was my first kind of paid job. Yeah. Um, and off the back of that, the tour manager on that came to me and said, do you play guitar by any chance? And I was like, yeah, I do. And he was like, he knew I sung and he knew I kind of did other bits like that. And he was like, there's this guy who hasn't broken yet. He's got a support tour um, called Example. And he's just released his first single. And we're looking for a guitar player. He was going to support Lily Allen. It's going to be 30 dates around the country. It's going to be in the back of a, you know, a little van. Um, but you'll have fun and, you know, it'd be a great experience. And I was only 19 at the time. And yep. I was like, hell yeah, that, that sounds incredible. So I joined Example 10 years ago now, a bit longer than 10 years ago. And 
I went on the road with him for five years after that. Wow. It was just like during that period where he just kept getting bigger and bigger. And so everything for me was just a huge learning curve because I got to see a star really rising from support tour, playing to, you know, doing headline shows and playing to 30, 40 people because they weren't selling out and yeah. then getting to, you know, your next level, whether it be Chevsbush Empire. I mean, it was, it was smaller than that. But, you know, each level just grew as the hits started coming and then, you know, ended up doing arenas around the UK and being part of three number one album campaigns. And it was just a great learning curve to see someone go on that full rise of pop star mode, if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And that was really my entry point into it all because that was really the first thing that I got to see about who signed to Ministry of Sound at the time. Yeah. And it was like, I really understood, oh, so that's what the A&R does and that's what the TV person does because we were constantly doing televisions and radios and just it was like a full life of pop star. Did you know much about the music industry before that? I did because both my parents are not directly in the music industry, but kind of part of the music industry. So right from a child, were you kind of like, well, you know, I'm going to go into music. Was that like a... Totally. Yeah. It was the only thing. It was yeah. the only thing. Um, my dad, he still performs all the time now. And he's, you know, he's 70 now. And he's been, he was a child star oh. from 12 and consistently has been working since then. So I kind of understood oh that that must be the way it is you know that's all i want to do i love music there's guitars everywhere and he's an incredible singer my mum at the time was um an actress and then skip forward a little longer my mum now runs a hospitality company that does every single big tour you can imagine whether it be the stones or robbie williams or take that or madonna or anything she gets brought on directly by the management to run their hospitality which means that then she has to talk to all the local promoters, agents, all that kind of stuff. So it was just a total, like, I was immersed in it, you know? Yeah. So that's quite similar to Luke then. Yeah, exactly. But his parents were directly, I mean, his dad was directly in the field that he, he is in now, kind of. Yeah. So when you told them that you were going to go into music, they, they were happy about that? Yeah, absolutely. Because they could just see that I worked night and day. Like, my work ethic is just insane. I just love doing it because it's not work. Like, mm-hmm. I really honestly wake up, work, all day, have my dinner, go back to work, turn off the computer, go to sleep, and that's it. And I would do that on Saturdays and Sundays as well. It doesn't, doesn't mean just because it's a weekday. I just fucking love it. Were you doing that from like a young age as well? Yeah, because I learned from Luke. Luke's three years older than me, I think. He had a studio at home, mm-hmm. and he was working on Pro Tools at 14 or something. Right. So, yeah, and I was like, wow, like 14, like... That's incredible. And he was so good for it. Like for a 14 year old, you'd be like, you really know what you're doing. So the first thing I ever learned was Pro Tools. I don't know how to, I don't know how to use anything else. Um, and that's because I learned off Luke, really. So yeah, they, they've always been supportive because they knew how much I loved it. I think if they didn't think that the talent was there or, you know, they'd probably tell me. So then I guess at that point you were a session player. So you were, you were playing guitar, for example. So I played guitar, for example, for five years. I did about, 500 shows with him, wow. I would say. Wow. And then what made you want to become a songwriter? Or did you always want to do that? I always wanted to do it. I always wanted to do it, but I was young enough that when I went to him on my first meeting, I was like, well, I don't want to be a session musician my whole life. And he said to me, I'm 28 now, and I'm just starting to break as an artist and a songwriter. So he was like, you've got plenty of time. Come with me. 
learn your craft, which is what my parents wanted me to do as well. Mm-hmm. You know, earn your stripes, cut your teeth, and then go off and and do your thing. And it was it was so invaluable that experience because I got to see it, and that was the building blocks of it all, really. But yeah, I went to him telling him I wanted to be a songwriter, and I was writing songs before I was with him. I was gigging on my own as you know, with a guitar, with a band, as David Stewart before joining the Example as well. Oh, uh, right, okay. So then, what kind of happened after the Example tour once that was over? Were you it's, songwriting on the side whilst you were doing that? Yeah. So the last year. I started getting itchy feet to just kind of get off and do my own thing because I was about 25 or so when I was starting to finish working with him. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I've done my time now. And I started working on a mixtape. And the mixtape, because we'd been touring with all these massive people, Ed Sheeran supported us and lived on our tour bus for two years with us. Mm -hmm. Rex was on tour with us. You know, so I made all these kind of natural friends within the music industry. And when it came to putting uh, something together as my first big project, I had features from, example, Ed Sheeran, Rex32. Um, there was a girl called Yasmin who was signed to Ministry of Sound at the time. She's a DJ now. I had a couple of really massive producers give me these. Everything was for free. And it was just like, just because we were all friends. I think now it's a bit different. I don't think that would happen really. But um, I had this mixtape out. and I mean, I still do have it out. It's everywhere. Yeah, that was the thing that was like my last kind of thing with example and i put it out the day before we headlined o2 arena wow so that was it was like a really big buzz and then i ended up getting like mr jam's hot record of the week off the back of that a bunch of record deal offers came in publishing offers came in thankfully again the gift and curse of having parents that know what they're talking about is there was no good contracts in there right they were all just shitty contracts <laughs> and they were very wise to it right you know so you couldn't really get um, too excited about it I couldn't, you know, when you get offered something, you just want to jump at it. If you're young and you're just excited, you see a check mm-hmm. and you see a record label, you want to jump at it. But they were like, let's just go into this. Let's speak to the lawyer. I've had the same lawyer for the past 10, 12 years now, who's always been, you know, what lawyers are like, very black and white with me. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it was, it was one of those kind of ones that we just looked at all of them we did, I think we did, a, we did some negotiating on some of them and it was just so far apart. My granddad also was a, a QC judge and was like very instrumental in changing a lot of the big publishing laws. He did stuff with the Rolling Stones, Bowie, you know, he was like one of these people that again, was so pro artist that he was looking at these contracts going, you can't, you can't sign these. Like, it's just, it's not right. I've seen a million of these in my career. If you're going to sign something like this, you're going to regret it. You might be all good now, but if it goes tits up in three years' time, which we all know is very easy Mm -hmm. to happen, then, yeah, he was like, you're going to regret it then. And we didn't end up signing it. But off the back of that, then I did get signed to Ludacris and moved to Atlanta for two years. So (laughs) that was kind of what came off the back of that mixtape. So I'm guessing that you're glad that you got that advice at that point. Massively. And yeah. I still kind of adopt it today just because it doesn't matter if something looks good on paper. Once you really delve into it and you understand the real facts of it, then things can become much more clear. And it's all good, like I said, when things are going great, but it's when things aren't going great is when you're going to regret signing that bit of paper. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
I mean, I've met so many musicians who have been sort of screwed over by signing the wrong deal mm-hmm. at the wrong time or whatever. So probably quite valuable to have that kind of advice or whatever or help. Me and Samir, for instance. So Samir's from Singapore and I'm I'm from Guernsey. So both of us didn't really know anyone like going into the music industry. I was incredibly naive when I first started. But yeah, I think you raise a good point that when someone comes along and shows a bit of interest, then you're kind of like, yeah, where do I sign? Um, you signed uh, and you signed a deal and moved to Atlanta for two years. Yes, yes, I did. It was with uh, Ludacris's management, so I was being managed by a guy called Shaka Zulu and Jeff Dixon, who have managed um, Luda his his whole career. Um, and they also signed like Chingy and Bobby Valentino and Two Chains, who was T Boy at the time, and ran DTP Records and all that kind of stuff. So again, like with hindsight totally the wrong match <laughs> but it was one of those opportunities that i was like do you know what this is such a wild opportunity that i can't not do it yeah you know and going back to the contractual thing thankfully i have an amazing lawyer who you know, he made sure that i was safe enough to go over mm-hmm. and you know if things don't go well then i'm i can walk away from it okay yeah. i was i was out there as an artist so it was off the back of my mixtape that they'd heard which was an r&b mixtape um and that's why i kind of got taken out there and what was that like living in atlanta for two years just backwards totally backwards for a white jewish boy from made of l but amazing like i learned so much from that whole process i learned for example like part of something that i'm good at i would say i'm really good at now is my vocal production and I learned everything from that whole process. You know, they get their vocals so slick. Specifically, I learned it from one person out there who I work with very consistently. But I was just like watching everything he was doing. And it was sometimes three sessions a day. So full grave, you know, graveyard shifts. So did they pay you in advance that you could live off? So you were kind of like, that was your living whilst you were there? No, it wasn't really because it was management. But they were paying for me to come out and put right. me up. So um, I was lucky enough that I'd been working consistently for six years before that right. and had money stashed anyway, so I could look after myself. It was just wild to be in those situations, being kind of from the background I'm from and what I look like and how I speak and all that kind of stuff. It was just like sticking out like a sore thumb. Were you doing a lot of R&B and like hip hop or what kind of music were you working on? A lot more R&B and then started to realize I need to just do what I do, which is pop. That's my go-to. I learned a hell of a lot because I learned, number one, Atlanta radio is a whole nother ball game to what, I mean, as you know, Samir, like in America, obviously in different states, your, ra- your radios are obviously very different. And Atlanta is extremely hip hop and trap and R&B and all that kind of stuff. So it was just like osmosis, just like, you know, I was just taking it in like a, like a sponge, everything that was going on and learning their slang. Because I was never around anyone like me. I was just around those guys. So it's all I knew for mm-hmm. two years. So I yep. really adopted what was going on. And actually when it came to writing R&B and still comes to writing R&B, I can do it authentically because I lived it and I've worked with everyone out there mm-hmm. and all the big producers out there and I've been in rooms with all of them and kind of lived that life. And I have been to lots of strip clubs. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what's that what's that place out loud is it magic something magic city yeah tell us stories about yeah. that 
It is like I've never seen anything like it in my life. I've never seen anything like it in my life. What is this place? Magic City. Yeah, what is it? Is it a club? Oh, it's a strip club. What? Like a really famous strip club. What? And why is it not like anything you've ever seen before? What happens? I mean, there's like hundreds of thousands of, yeah, exactly. That's more to the point. There's hundreds of thousands of dollars on the floor, firstly, when you walk in. Everyone is butt naked. Like they're like hanging from the ceiling, pussy popping. And you can eat chicken wings while you're doing it as well. It's the best (laughs) chicken wings ever. (laughs) So, So would you be going in sessions with massive producers and then like going to strip clubs? Yeah. Yeah. I was fully living my best Atlanta strip club life. It's really interesting how much power there is in the DJs at the strip clubs too. Yeah, they break records out of strip clubs. Yeah, such a wild thing. When you first went out there, were you already quite confident in sort of going into sessions yeah. with people and stuff? Yeah, I was used to going to sessions with producers and writers. But when you go into sessions with people in Atlanta, again, their kind of demeanor is quite different. It's a very aggressive place. Mm-hmm. You know, there's guns everywhere. Everyone carries guns. Everyone smokes weed. It's just part of that culture. I mean, the first time you see a gun, that's kind of scary. Mm-hmm. But then, like, you know, you get used to it. It's just a culture that you've got to kind of accept. And that's what it is. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. It's, it's kind of wild west. But, but then you kind of accept it for what it is. And then it kind of takes on its own form. And, you know, the stuff I was writing then, you know, I look back on it now and I'm like, I could never write that now, obviously because of the circumstances have changed so much, but it's just like, it's wild. But yeah, no, it was, it was intimidating for the first few weeks of being out there. But, you know, as soon as you find your feet, I'm not hood. So there's no point in me trying to pretend I'm hood. So I only just went out there being who I am, you know? Yeah. And so there was never any, never any weird vibes or anything. Was the plan to always be there for only two years or? No, no. The plan was to go and get a deal and be an artist and all that kind of stuff. And I did a bunch of big label meetings with heads. Nothing really came off. And do you know what the funny thing is, is one of the last things I ever did with them was I was flown out to LA. No, I tell you, like, I was flown out to New York by Wendy Goldstein. And I did a showcase for the whole of the label with Monty and Avery there and everything. And it didn't go well. I wasn't prepared. I wasn't right. It just was total wrong timing. But then skip forward to now, and my first major cut with the Jonas Brothers is through Wendy Goldstein. And it's just like so full circle. And weirdly, everything, like the girl Claudia, who I told you I developed, she's now signed to Wendy. Hayley Steinfeld is also signed to Wendy. It's like she was one of the first people to really like be like, cool, we're going to fly him to New York and we're going to do this thing. And and then now it's like, we're here now. And she's like, he's my best mate. Yeah, it's, it's funny how the music industry is a bit like that, really. You, you never know at the time. Yeah. But yeah, someone, someone that you met five years ago can suddenly come around again. So did you move back to London after Atlanta? I moved back to London. And I was probably 26 or 27 when I got back from there, I think, around then. And I was kind of at a point where I was like, you know what like I've been out there I've done the artist thing I've been trying to make the artist thing happen and for one reason or another the stars haven't aligned and it can make you kind of like not jaded it can make you almost a bit entitled at the time especially when you're just like 
what am I doing wrong? And then you start to kind of like question yourself. And I kind of got to that point where I went at the end of it. I was like, I just can't, it's just not coming together. I don't know why the songs are great. I can perform well. Um, yeah, I don't know what it was. We'll never know. But I kind of came back and I was like, do you know what? I need to make a living out of this now. It's all good and well. And you know how, you know, when you're an artist, it's very difficult to make, you know, money. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm at an age now where I do need to make a living. And my parents had kind of come to me and they're like, why don't you think about the producer thing and writing? Because my biggest weakness as an artist was I was too diverse and I was too comfortable in too many lanes. So I was really good at R&B. I was really good at doing pop. And I was good at doing lots of different things. And the main thing that I used to get was, who are you? Like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, it's just confusing. You're confusing everyone with which lane you want to be in. And I think now, as a producer, my strongest thing is the fact that I can lend my hand to different things. And that is the fun part about being a producer and writer is that I don't have to just wear one hat anymore. But yeah, sorry, I digress. But um, 26, 27, I start thinking I'm going to become a producer and a writer and things kind of escalated. I got two cuts on two majors within like the first kind of six months of doing it, one with Tiny Temper. And I had a song on his album, which I produced and wrote and featured on. And then I had two with my sister who was signed to Warner at the time. So did you sign a publishing deal at this point? Or how were you- no, how, I, hadn't signed, you getting, I hadn't signed my publishing. How were you getting just this- through the, Just through the, like, the back door or front door. Kate was signed to Warner. I had a song and in fact that was my first kind of big check from a record label was for this song for Kate because Tiny also wanted it as well and then there became this like bidding war over the song and it ended up going to Kate and then offers started coming in for my publishing Tiny offered me a publishing deal which I didn't do uh, in the end but and then Modest uh, Management offered Mm -hmm. me a publishing deal which I didn't end up doing either and again, like it wasn't coming together, although like things were starting to move. The pieces weren't just like going like that. And um, yeah, it was like, when is it going to happen? And then suddenly I met my publisher, Danny D, who is Stella Songs, which is part of Sony ATV. And I had this meeting with him and I just sat with him for like four hours. And I knew, I knew at the start of that meeting, I was just like, I'm, he's going to offer me a deal. I know he is. Because we just sat. And yeah, it was like, just want to listen more and more and more, play me more, play me more. And we just got on like a house on fire and he just signed my writing partner as well. The reason why we were in touch was he was like, who's do- who are you doing all these songs with? All the ones that stood out to him. He was like, oh, my, my, my uh, writing partner and kind of production person, David. So we've sat down, we spoke. And then, yeah, we like, we really clicked and he offered a deal there and then. And it was the first one that I was like, everyone was like, yeah, this is, this is good to go. You know, and after, you know, obviously back and forth and all that, we did it. And that was really the door opening because he's been also a huge, almost mentor because he's so musical. You know, there's a lot of A&Rs or music people who don't really speak music language. But because he was a producer and an artist and a writer, he speaks and it's like, oh, I totally get it because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's really great. And that as a publisher, you know, giving me knowledge is like just incredible to have. So he was really my first big champion, put his money where his mouth is. And he was like, yeah, yeah. You mentioned something you said, and you were quite entitled at one point. And um, do mm-hmm. you, I think that's an interesting word to use. Um, do you think it's important not to be when you're entering the music industry? Absolutely. 
you know, I think I learned with age, you know, self-entitlement is just wrong. But it's easy to get jaded when you get knocked back after knocked back and you think, but, but I deserve this. Mm-hmm. But I think what you've got to understand is that there's no process that is the same. Some people get picked up at 20 and some people get picked up at 30 and some people become a star at 35 and others become a star at 16, but then disappear when they're 20. The moment it clicked was when I understood that there is a process and there's a lane and there's like, life will work its way out one way or another. It's hard to understand that when you're in it. And hindsight is a beautiful thing. But I I really think that was the clicking point. And also understanding there's more than enough to go around. Just because you're getting it doesn't mean that I can't get it. Just because you're making money and having hits doesn't mean that I can't. Like this, it's all good to be competitive, and I am competitive because I want to be the best, of course. But it's like everyone can smash it, and it doesn't make a difference to you at all. That's a really key thing that I learned as well. When was this when you first signed the publishing deal? Uh, three years ago, I want to say two, three years ago. Yeah, three years ago. What was happening? just after you signed the publishing deal? Did you feel like it made a huge difference? Well, Selena Gomez cut my song uh, within three months of signing my publishing deal. Wow. So, like, that was the first big thing that came straight away. I was like, in fact, no, I tell a lie. She cut it within a week of signing my publishing deal, I think. She had it and wanted to cut it within a week. And did that come via the publishing situation? That came by Danny, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. So at that point, did you feel like that was kind of like, right, okay, things are really happening? I guess so, but it was also understanding that, like, things go like that as well. Sorry, I'm on a podcast. People can't see me what I'm doing with my hand. (laughs) Um, People, uh, what am I doing with my hand, Stevie? I can't tell. (laughs) Up and down. Peaks and troughs. Peaks and troughs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I was like, it was one of those things I was like, this is amazing. It's like, I've got a superstar who's just cut my song and this is really exciting because I just made it in my bedroom. But it was also not getting caught up on it and being like, cool, let's go get the next one. And America is always where I've wanted, like no shade to the UK at all. But like I make American sounding pop mm-hmm. um, and I've always listened to, you know, a lot of American stuff and I love that world. So yeah, that was, that was something I was aimed to. So I was like, cool, we don't know what's going to happen. That sat for two years and then didn't come out. You know, even though we'd done half a production deal for it, like we'd done the deal for it. I was under the assumption it was coming out. It was being talked about being a single and then suddenly everything changed. You know, A&R time changed. I think she probably went through things and then suddenly the album takes a new course and that's, that's the end of it. And to me, it's the biggest thing because it was the big thing that I had at the time. But for her, you know, it was just like another, oh, it's just another cog in the wheel type of thing. Was that the song that ended up being the Hayley Steinfeld song? No, that's now Claudia's song, this, this girl who signed to Republic. Right. Because I'm sure Luke told me that it was, maybe he got confused, but it was supposed to be for Selena Gomez or something. Well, Selena was one of the people that was looking at it as well. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, it sounds like you are very sort of grounded and know that things come in peaks and troughs. Did you know that already, do you think, at the time when that was happening? Or is that something you've learned through that process? I think I've, I think I've learned it, but also I'm, you know, going back to my parents, like 
they've always been real with me in the fact that like this is life like it doesn't always go your way type of thing so it's just mm. my life never really came together like that so I was like if it happens it happens and I really did have my hopes on it happening when it didn't happen I was like gutted but actually by the time I found out that it didn't happen I had a Haley cut so I was like oh well that's a good thing I mean if the Selena thing is not going to happen then oh well, at least I've got another pop star that's cut my song is there a lot of disappointment like getting your hopes up for something and then it just not happening yeah, I had 10 years of disappointment. How do you kind of deal with that? You just got to be resilient. I lost a publishing deal. There was, there was a bunch of things that I was negotiating on and it just didn't come through for one reason or another because we just couldn't agree on it. And I was like, I lost it that day. And I was like, fuck this. Like, no, like, but that's my, that's my temperament. I'm quite a, I just don't give up. If you would ask my parents, like what I've been doing for the past 10 years, that it's just music. That's all I fucking do. Like I get a no and I come back and I figure another way. You have to be so resilient. That's the only way you can really get into this. And you didn't let it get you down? It gets you down because I think that's just human nature. But anyone who's come through it has mostly done that time of being told no to everything. Like it was a no to everything that yeah. I got. Even though I had a you know, an interesting kind of path up to that, but nothing that I, I truly wanted yeah. came to fruition. Mm -hmm. When you're dealing with that disappointment, does that actually help the songwriting? It can do, but I think I could hear angst in some of my songs that I wrote. But I think also, again, like not to get too philosophical with it, but as soon as you realise that part of life is a lot of disappointment, yeah. you start to take it on the chin a bit more and just understand that that is just the way it is. And when I get a knockback now, which I still get plenty of them, I'm like, cool, on to the next one. Oh, they don't want it? Fuck it. We'll go write another one that's better for them. Or we'll go and take it somewhere else. Just after the uh, Selena Gomez thing, what kind of came after that? And what kind of led you to this moment now? So Selena happened. I was at the same time working with this young artist, Claudia, who I was doing everything for, producing, writing, managing taking meetings on her behalf, you know, with labels, all that kind of stuff. And then like a lot started to ramp up for that and people were getting excited about that. Then Danny, my publisher, put me in touch with an artist called Marina Kay, who's a French artist and she's, you know, platinum in France and doing massive venues out there, but hadn't done an English speaking record. And Jess and I, who I write a lot with, we did a session with her and we just clicked and then we ended up doing the whole album only one single has come out from the album so far but that was like a year of solid work and i i had 10 songs on the album and i exec the album as well so that again was like another piece to the puzzle which was like cool now i can get into something and make it really cohesive and like give it a theme and make it feel like it's like the one artist because very rarely would you ever have an artist that would go to one producer for an album ever mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. nowadays anyway yeah and so you were, you were like working in the room with her at that point? Yeah, yeah. We did a bunch of sessions at my spot. And then towards the end, because it was just me, Jess and her, and we probably got half the album at mine. And then we were like, cool, now let's put a, a camp together, but not a writing camp, which has 10 rooms and five writers in each room and the artist goes round and round. We did it on a, on a boat with a studio and a boat which was really good fun. And then we just had our friends come in. 
so we just brought a different writer in with me and jess every day for 10 days and we finished the album that way so we had like ara benjamin who did running for beyonce and we had um uh, nagin who did the michael jackson drake one you know we had all these great people come in and, and give different angles of their writing which we were like cool for me as a producer like it's one of those things that you can't always because i'm a, as much of a writer as i am a producer and sometimes you need to understand what the room is doing you can't always just be overbearing and trying to write everything and try to produce everything you need to understand that if there's another writer in the room that is like doing their thing and you're happy with it it's almost kicking back and being like cool let me do let them do their thing and i can kick back and just kind of interject when i need to this is a slightly technical point but coming from like the indie world i find it really interesting how there's so much collaboration in the pop world and i'm mm. and i wonder because i actually watched the ed sheeran documentary on apple music where he kind of did something very similar to what you just said he had a lot mm. of friends and he was sort of going from one room and if there's a lot of different people sort of producing a track who's like the main producer is there always from the get-go like somebody who is like right i'm i'm the producer here so anything that you add is more of a writing thing or how does that how does that work i guess it's a bit of a gray area but i kind of also think that when you're working with someone that has that mutual respect for you, you know that you'd hope anyway, that your business would be straight enough that you could just be like, cool, this is going to be a co or, you know, there was, for example, with the Haley song, I did a gazillion versions and then we decided, you know what, let's bring someone in to help get the drums a bit better. And even though it was my record mm -hmm. and I, I was the only name producer on it, sometimes you've got to do that to get it over the line. And there's so many different, formations of how you can do it but yeah i guess that's a difficult one really to to navigate but you I, I guess you can probably feel it out does the record label end up paying more for the production in that or do you as the writer have to take some of your fee and give it to someone else well if there's two producers on a record then you just split it and then you split the points as well right is that is there ever kind of a pushback where you're thinking well i don't really want someone else to be involved in this there sometimes is, but then again, it's the ego thing, checking it in at the door, like whatever we've got to do to get this the best it can be. I'd rather have 30% of something than 100% of nothing. Uh -huh. So it's like, I'm quite lucky because I know that I can produce 100%, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean I always will produce 100%. Like there's people that do certain things better than me, and I know that. Like yeah. I know that if I go to so-and-so, his drums are going to be better than mine because that's his world. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And it's just like doing what's best for the song. If you look at someone like Max Martin, you'll never see Max Martin pretty much ever alone on a credit. He's always got two or three other people on there, mm -hmm. whether it be Shellback, who's incredible, or whether it be like his new guy. He's always got that young, hot guy who's just like on top of it, keeping him youthful, keeping him fresh. And I think that is the most important thing to stay relevant. Otherwise, you're just doing it for the, for the reason of I want to keep as much percentage and as many points to myself and as much of the production fee to myself. Then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of not looking at the long game and thinking too much about the short term. Exactly, exactly. Because money will come if you've got talent. I mean, I don't really understand when I see like there's like 15 or 20 people on a song because then I'm like, well, how's that happened? That is the world of pop in america especially they do patchwork out there so they'll send the same beat to 10 writers and they'll use your pre-chorus they'll use 
her chorus or they might love their melody in the verse but you know they'll get their melody and they'll say use those phonetics and write new lyrics to them it's just piecing it together have you ever done anything like that uh no no you've never had a track that that's happened to no but i don't think i ever would to be honest i mean i'm not going to rule it out but i know that the way that my manager thinks he knows that i'm quite like good at doing all the bits myself and if we need to go elsewhere to get a better hook because i'm too close to it or well, so be it we'll go to another great writer but there's no shame in that either so how did you uh, how did you meet your manager and how did that all come about the first piece of it is i'm co-managed by neil jacobson and charlie christie and um Charlie is a friend of mine who I've known for a good 10 years. We connected about seven or eight years ago because after I put out the mixtape, I put out an EP with Sango and he was managing Sango at the time. Charlie was 17 at the time or something, even younger than that. And he was just this wonder kid. I was like, who on earth is this boy? He's so together and he's like 16 and he just knew everyone. And I was just like, what the fuck? So we kept in touch as friends over years. And then he managed Kate Trinada. And then he found Rex Orange County and managed Rex Orange County for four years. And he was just like always this person. I was like, he is going to one day be my manager. And he didn't want to at the time when I was an artist. It just didn't really work just because we were doing different things. And it just wasn't the right time. But we all always kept in touch. As a running joke, I was always like, when are you going to be my manager? Like, and he was like, ah, it's not, we'll see. Anyway, he finished working with Rex and he then went into Scope where he's now A&R and, you know, like one, like one of Janik's right hands over there. And he's, you know, serious, serious, like doesn't fuck around. And he's only 25 or something now. When he was kind of in between jobs, I was like, I'm producing now and writing. Are you ready to be my manager yet? Fucking say yes. And he was like, okay. He was like, I will do it. But he was like, I think there's someone that I want to bring in to co-manage with you. We've been looking to do something together for ages. He's like an OG. At the time, Neil was president of Geffen Records. He's like, you've got to meet him. He's incredible. He knows everyone. And in fact, the first thing that Charlie played to Neil and bear in mind, Neil manages Jeff Basker, Emil Haney, a bunch of other people. You know, Neil, he doesn't take on that many people. So it's a small roster. Mm-hmm. So Charlie played No My Love Yous, which is the yeah. Haley single, in its original demo form to Neil. And he was like, who on earth is this? Like, this is something that I'm interested in. And we set up a conversation over the phone. We spoke for an hour. It was just as soon as I heard him for the first like 20 minutes i was like this this feels right for the first time in my life this feels like the stars are aligning just because i've never had that moment where the right manager at the right time with the right situation it never came together like that and for the first time i was like do you know what in my gut and i know to trust my gut now this is this feels right for the first time Mm -hmm. and yeah like we we clicked he flew me out to LA and put me up for a week last summer. We formally, me, Charlie and him, started working in September last year. 
and within three months had Haley Steinfeld and Jonas Brothers cuts and numerous other things, but those two being the big kind of pieces. Amazing. So at that point, you kind of felt like, right, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for. Yeah, but I'd never had that before. And that's why at the time, I remember saying to my parents, and I always use them as a sounding board because they're just wise and they're just, they know what they're talking about. And they've been through all my different guises with me and, and seen me work with different managers that haven't worked out. And they were like, no, this, this feels right now, which for me was like amazing. Like I'd never had that before. So that was just the end of last year? That was at the end of last year, yeah. Yeah. And then I know that you like went out to the Grammys and everything. Yeah. How was that? Yeah, I did. Well, they performed What Man Got to Do at the Grammys, which was like mental. Just to hear the arrangement that they put together with the massive horn section and all that kind of stuff. And then the song started to bubble while I was out there and started getting all the radio play. and then was number one on the iTunes chart and like just all sorts of like cool things that I was just like, wow, this is, this is kind of wild. Like yeah. this is what I've been waiting for for like 12 years. Yeah. So it was lovely. And I was out there with Jess who I wrote it with. That was all cool. And then I went to um, the Billie Eilish party afterwards and kind of met everyone there. Amazing. Yeah. Wild, 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 wild. Just so exciting for me. If I've, you know, one of the best days of my life, definitely. And that was like, fairly recent wasn't it i mean it was just before february yeah just before the lockdown yeah yeah how much of your life and work has changed since this has happened i mean apart from doing sessions absolutely nothing i don't leave my room anyway so you know i wake up i work out <clears throat> which i would do normally but i just do it at the gym yeah i come upstairs i'm lucky enough that i'm self-sufficient that i can you know, like Luke, I can write and produce and I can sing. Mm-hmm. I haven't got to go elsewhere to get what I need. Jess and I, because we work so much, we're telepathic in the way we write anyway. So I bring her up on Zoom. We've got, you know, audio movers set up, which means that she can hear my Pro Tools session. And we just write in, in real time. We've written probably about six or seven songs now during this period. Luke actually introduced me to that, where you can hear what's going through someone's speakers. That was like revolutionary. And I was like, what the hell is this? It's so 2020. Like it's, yeah. it's just wild. I did a session the other day, which was using audio movers. Sorry, now I'm going to get a bit geeky. Which was using audio movers apparently in the way that you should be moving it rather than sending the, the link to the website. Basically, me and the artist and the other producer who were working, we all had our microphones set up. We all had headphones on. I had my stuff playing. They had their stuff playing. He had a guitar. The artist had a guitar plugged in. And it was all coming through my Pro Tools. And then we had everyone on Zoom. And so when he was recording it, the other guy was recording his screen, as in like he was cutting a vocal, and the other producer was controlling his screen. Like, what the... What? Like, (laughs) what? Yeah, that is... is Yeah. I had reservations about doing Zoom sessions, and I still kind of do. But I spoke to my manager... And he was like, you're going to have to get used to this because nothing's going to change anytime soon, especially for the next three, four, five months. I mean, there's no traveling at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and majority of my work is in America with different producers or, or writers or whatever. So I'm going to have to get used to it, you know, one way or another. Well, yeah, absolutely. I think everyone's got to adapt, haven't they? 
And again, that's like, you can't get angry about it. You just go embrace it. That is the way it is now. This is the new, this is the new normal. Get used to it until, you know, you can get back in the room with people. Otherwise, you're just going to fall behind. How have sessions been from a live stream perspective? Normally, sessions are a whole day, if not 10 hours, 12 hours. Is that the same amount of duration that you have on live stream and, and doing it through Zoom or things more concise and people are getting things done quicker? How's the whole flow of a day? I mean, I've only done one artist session the other day and that was, we started at 11.30 and we finished at five. When I do a session in my spot, I would start at 12 and finish at six latest because our rapport is so quick anyway that we you know, we can get things done really, really quickly in the room. But Jess is the main person I've been working with. I won't go to her until I've got a beat, you know, a beat made up or an idea for something. And we'll write it within two hours, like just because we, we're just quick. We just know what we can do now. So yeah, when, when it's just Jess and I, it'll be quick. But when, you know, when it's with someone I don't know, which was, you know, the other day, two people I didn't know, you know, I guess if it's not weird enough that when you meet an artist for the first time or another writer or another producer, you've got to build a rapport quite quickly because then you're going to jump into working with each other. And it's kind of weird doing that then over FaceTime. Although, yeah. you know, I feel like now we've been speaking, I don't know how long we've been speaking for, but 45 minutes or whatever. And I'd feel like now, cool. You ready to write? Like, I'd feel like this amount of time. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Good. Yeah. I, I almost need it. But you don't have that time, especially on Zoom. Like, you're not, we're not here to get, to know each other as friends we're here to to yeah. write yeah yeah it's just, a, it's just it's a very strange thing i've always admired that about songwriters and, and musicians is getting in a room with a complete stranger and just turning out magic to me is just blows my mind every time and someone who can do it on wow. such a consistent prolific level is yeah. you know to your point earlier of like everything in life works at such a different rate to what we want it to and yeah. you know, a part of that is having peace with that. And then mm -hmm. songwriting to me is just the opposite. It's like, it's, it's so quick sometimes. Granted, I, I do think songwriting is a skill, but it's like every moment in life has led up to you writing that song in that moment with that stranger in right. that room. But at the same time, it's truly the magic of what music is, is, is those Massively. people coming together and, and doing that. Totally. And have so much admiration for people that are able to do that consistently. I mean, that is part of being a writer or a producer is like, it is more than just being good at what you do. Like you've got to be good in a room with people. Like people don't want to work with people who are awkward or annoying or rude or, or whatever. I think it kind of works almost in tandem, like with real business, like repeat business. Like if I do a session with someone, the idea is if, I, if we like each other, we're going to do a session again and we you know we turn things out you want to always hear back from their management to my management they loved him and they want to work again and vice versa so it's like that's such a big part of this business it's not just music you can be great but if you haven't got the other bits to add to it which is being you know easy to get on with and i get also creatives are intrinsically strange people do you ever do you ever get into a session and think oh this isn't going to work it, oh yeah yeah. But less than, like maybe once a year or twice a year. What happens then? Do you just try and go through it or how do you work through yeah. that? Well, my thing that I've always, always done is finish everything. I never, ever don't finish a song. Even if it's shitty, 
and I've got to the end of the chorus and I'm thinking there's no point in me writing a second verse and a bridge but it's part of my routine that I have to do it and then I burn it not physically as in like you know, I bounce it and then it goes on the laptop and then and then that's the end of it and so when you go in a room with someone that is like this is a bit awkward or it's not quite working or you don't get on for one reason or another I mean I've never had that but you know, it just doesn't work. And sometimes it doesn't work. My mentality is we came here to do a job and we'll finish something and write something. And it might not be good, but I came and did what I told you I was going to do, which was do a song. And that's just life. It, it can't always come together every time. I feel like that's such an interesting perspective, you know, and Stevie, you're bringing up of how indie rooms are very different from majors, you know, from the pop side of things. And I think without trying to sound too crass or a lack of soul in in terms of the uh, songwriting and pop music, Mm. it's definitely something that people are able to let go of music more and Mm. understand it's a business. So it's like, okay, I want to get the best out of it versus such a conversation I have with so many indie artists. So much of it is like, this is my art and this Mm -hmm. is me controlling it versus allowing Mm -hmm. other people to come in. And I think that's a huge difference in the mentality itself, which is why I think pop artists are able to bring in people sooner than a lot of indie artists that are in that trajectory where it's still about so possessive and, and, you know, mentally unable to release that sometimes. Totally. Totally. Is that something you've noticed as well with writing with more independent artists or is that definitely um, a wall that you face? I guess so. I mean, I've, I've now kind of, I, I think that was something that I was going through maybe three years ago when I was cutting my teeth more, but now I'm much more in that pop world. So I'm kind of really immersed by that now. So I'm really only used to that world, if you know what I mean. But yeah, it is what you were saying is exactly right. How much of the songs that you end up getting cut are, are songs that you've written in your studio versus writing in a room with somebody, like in a room with the artist? Yeah, in America, they have this like kind of win mentality, which is we'll do whatever we've got to do to win, regardless of whether you're a part of it. And a big artist will end up taking a percentage or a really big artist will end up taking a percentage of the writing anyway. But yeah, in the UK, you have to be in the room with an artist really to be able to get it over the line. Um, And I think that's the biggest difference between here and the States. That's really interesting. And is it like massive pop acts that have that mentality uh, of not being in the room or is it just across the board in the US? What, you mean taking songs in the US? Yeah. I think some people want to be, but actually usually the bigger the artist and from what I can see and what I've been told, actually it becomes easier to place songs on them rather than the ones that are, you know, a bit more like still grinding it out and doing stuff. Like I think probably placing a song on Katy Perry would probably be easier than placing a song on someone less of a superstar than Katy yeah, Perry. Yeah. Because, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's interesting. We've always got some questions that we always ask. The first question we ask is, who's the most famous person in your phone book? Ed Sheeran. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Can you guys check if it's the same number you both have? <laughs> I've got an old number of Ed Sheeran. I'm sure Dave has got the new one. I've also got his weird email because he doesn't really have a phone anymore, does he? He only goes by email. So that's, that's the only contact I've got. Right, right. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, he was mine. He was my most famous person in my phone. But 
No, um, I love that you still have it saved, even though you know it's not the <laughs> Just in case. The <laughs> <laughs> what's, the, what's the next one? The next one was this thing called Isolation Tapes, which is a song that you love that you cannot find anywhere in DSPs. What song is that for you? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I have no idea. That's a good question, though. One last question. Yeah. Which is, what was your first ever live gig? Um, Britney Spears. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It was Britney Spears when I was like, must have been 10. And I was like third row. Wow. Wow. Where was that? Would have been Wembley Arena. Wow. Was that a gig you wanted to go to? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I've been a a pop warrior since day. Was that that like her first album? What, 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 What era of Britney was this? Hit me baby one more time. Oh, that's wow. Good. OG. That was yeah. the best. And like Max Martin is like my god. So yeah. like, it, obviously that was all him as well. So like. Oh God, early Britney was incredible. Incredible. Uh, is that the best gig ever? Uh, no. I mean, it definitely wasn't the best gig ever. <laughs> <laughs> but it brings back fun memories. <laughs> what was the best gig ever? Do you know what the best gig ever, ever, ever was? And I was so lucky to go to this, was the Zeppelin reunion. Oh, um, nice. And I mean, those tickets were like gold dust, but my mum was doing all the hospitality for it. So I managed to put her arm and I was like, get me a ticket. I need to see him. And I'm a huge Zeppelin fan as well. So like, yeah, unfortunately, obviously John Bonham isn't alive, but uh, his son played drums for them. And it was just like mind blowing. Yeah. Wow. Well, I can imagine. When was this? That would have been 2011, 12. Because I saw Robert Plant. It must have been before that. I don't know, 2007 or something like that. I saw him at Exit Festival in Serbia. That's amazing. Did he play any Zeppelin tunes? Or was it more like the new records he did? He played more of the new records, but he did play a few classics. I remember him playing Whole Lot of Love. Oh, what song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He put out an amazing album with Alison Krauss called uh, Raising Sands. You should listen to that if you've not before. It's incredible. I just remember being so impressed by his vocal. He's got better somehow. It's yeah. like a, it's a good bottle of red wine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any plans of still wanting to be an artist? My one thing about being an artist is that I'm a homebody. And that's why I love being about a producer is that I don't have to leave the comfort of my own home. And I love routine. Yeah, and that was the thing that over the past three years I've been like, no, not being asked anymore. I don't want to do it because I don't want to be on the road anymore. And I've done that. But recently, funnily enough, since I've stopped wanting to be an artist and started like doing like better as a writer and a producer, I've suddenly got loads of people coming back to me being like, you know that artist thing that you're doing? And I'm like, oh, now you want it. Now that I don't want it, you want it. Like, what the, that doesn't work. But my manager, Charlie, he keeps on bullying me and saying, when are you going to do it? So do you know what? If it happens, I'm going to let it naturally happen because I, I, a big part of what I do is demoing the vocals. So like, I think one day it will end up being like, you know, a feature might come out and then 
something might come off the back of that. I mean, it's not something I'm going to plan to do, but if it happens naturally, then then it'd be a lovely surprise. I had one last question, actually. Mm-hmm. Most artists' favorite songs are the last song that they wrote. Is that yeah. the same for you? No. No, I'm quite objective, actually. I'll be excited when it's like just done and I've sent it to my management and I'm like, I'm the shit, I'm amazing, I am Max Martin. And then, and then I slowly become less Max Martin as the night goes on if it's not a <laughs> <laughs> you know what sometimes you know how with a football player they usually know if they're taking a free kick when it's left the foot they know if it's going in or not and i think not all the time but especially with like the jonas one or the Haley one i knew as soon as we'd written that i was like this these two feel really good i love that analogy of uh, a footballer and the yeah yeah i mean it's not always it's not always the case of course, but like sometimes you just get a gut feeling, like if yeah. something feels, it feels so really what, rough. So, what is your favorite song that you've written? The Jonas one uh, is definitely like up there. I've got a couple which like are in the ether at the moment, which I like probably more than them, and I've had longer than both of them actually. Um, I've got one that I did with Ryan Tedder recently, and it's amazing. Like I've I've got a bunch that I love, but you know. You can write something five years ago and it will come out. Right. Like, yeah. Hey, so wild. Like, you just don't know when something's going to come out or who the right artist is. Or, you know, you might yeah. have the right song for the wrong artist or, you know, at the time or, I don't know, it's such a wild world. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, yeah, thanks. Thanks again so, so much for your time and good luck with everything. Yeah, Thank man. You. Thanks for being part of this and, you know, we really do appreciate your honesty. And it, it's, sure. like Stevie said, it's, we learned so much from this. It's, it's remarkable. Thank you, and same to you guys. All right, gents, have a great day. Take care, guys. Cheers, guys. Cheers.